I really hope that, that we retain this, this, this kind of cultural oddity that we still have of communal experiences, of the excitement of opening day. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. All right, folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in this week. If you like movies like I do, you're definitely going to like this episode. I got the chance to speak with Peter Giannascoli, the co-president of Domestic Marketing at Paramount Pictures. It sounds like an awesome job. It is an awesome job. We talk all about the film business, how movies get made, or in many cases, not made, and a bunch of other really interesting stuff. Peter was here to visit with our entertainment management student, something he generously does each year, and it was great to get some time with him. I learned a ton about the film industry in this conversation, and I'm excited to bring it to you right now. All right, so we're here today with Peter Giannascoli. Peter, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Wonderful to be here in Montana. Welcome back. How many years now have you been coming to speak in our entertainment management program? I feel like this is the fifth time I've done it. Fifth time. Don't uh, don't quote me on that, but okay. I f- it feels like around five. Yeah. So you are the co-president of domestic marketing at Paramount Pictures. Been in that role, what, five years, four years now? I've been in this role only for about two and a half. Okay. But I've been at Paramount for, uh, it'll be 14 in October. Wow. Yeah. So, what a wild fourteen years in the movie industry. It's it's been uh, I've seen a, a lot of change. Yeah. Since I arrived, yeah, and it was my first job in in L.A. too. So it was you know Gosh. I've seen a lot of change in in L.A. and a lot of change in the film business and television business, and it's been yeah it's been a definitely it has not been a boring decade and a half for sure. Yeah. Well, I, I want to get into all that, but also sort of you know go back to the beginning. And, you know, you were an undergrad in economics at Princeton, if I recall. That's right. And worked in management consulting for a bit. I did. I did two and a half years of consulting, um, actually right there in Princeton at a, at, a, at a company called ZS Associates that primarily did pharmaceutical industry work. And that's kind of like a bit of a track out of Princeton, right? You either go to Wall Street, you go to pharma, or you go to consulting. Or consulting whatever. and investment banking. Yeah, Those yeah, are the yeah. two big um, tracks out of out of um, out of Ivy League schools, or at least it was back then. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how big tech has gotten these days, but right. back then, when you think about who came on campus to recruit, those are the two big industries. Obviously, Princeton's got a big engineering program, so the engineers do the engineering thing and big pre-med, but those of us who were just kind of looking for jobs, it felt like those were the two main tracks. Right. Um, and consulting appealed to me. You know, I, I didn't... Um, treasure my experiences with uh, quantitative stuff in college. You know, I, <laughs> well put. I'm not, I don't think I'm terrible at math, but I definitely, it, it's, it was a lot of effort. Yeah, you were an economics major. Correct. Yeah. There, uh, I was lucky because there was, believe it or not, a math track and a non-math track mm. of economics uh, at that point. I, I bet there still is. I'm not sure. But I, I was definitely a, a firm non-math track econ major. Okay. And um, look, I really enjoyed the economics classes I took. I think by the end of the coursework, junior, senior year, I was kind of starting, when the classes did get more quantitative, I started to feel like, oh boy, this is getting a little bit intense for my taste in terms of the um, 
the, the how much math, how much analytics is, are, is in these classes. It took it like you know econometrics. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking of that like, very word. When econ- wow. economics becomes econometrics, it gets a little yeah. bit more real. I made it through, but it definitely. I didn't feel like, oh, I should get a PhD in economics. You know, I, I definitely just wanted a job and, and, and wanted to kind of move on with my life. But the classes that I really did treasure taking at Princeton junior and senior year were film and video classes. Mm-hmm. So there was a professor there at that time named uh, P. Adam Sidney, who was like a real big part of the film avant-garde movement and then kind of became Princeton's only film professor. And I took two or three classes with him, and he really showed me a lot of movies that opened my eyes to, you know, European art filmmaking, um, Japanese filmmaking, okay. that, you know, from those glory days of the 60s and 70s when there were just a lot of interesting things happening in that, in that, in the, you know, the international art film movement. So, um, and then I took a couple video production classes that I really okay. enjoyed. And so, so and I finished up my degree, but then, you know, um, while I was working in that first job, I kind of had this in the back of my mind, this this think, this thought that maybe one day I'll try to get back into uh-huh. film somehow because it was just I was just super passionate about it and had been since high school. And after a couple years of of consulting, I got promoted and I was and I had a great experience at ZS. Really, really great, kind people there. I still have friends there. Um, a lot of folks started going to business school mm-hmm. that I was. Yeah, you know, it's kind of the thing. Go for class, two years, exactly. go back for MBA. Yeah. And and I started to see this path before me of going to business school, or getting you know then back into back into industry. And I kind of I wasn't passionate about it. Mm-hmm. I, 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 the idea of going to business school didn't. I didn't. Um, I wasn't like excited or energized about it. So I had kind of been doing research about what I could do to go back to school for film and, okay. I, and I found the cinema studies degree at Tisch at, at NYU, NYU which is yeah which is um a wonderful little program you know there were like 38 um, students in my in my year small program um the film production program there which I would have had a blast doing too it's more years it requires that you kind of have enough uh at that point Filmmaking was more expensive, I guess, but now probably you could just do it on an iPhone. But at that point, there was a requirement for you to kind of finance your own film project. Uh, and like a senior project. I just didn't have the resources, and I didn't want to you know, spend four years. So I was able to pay for my own way at NYU in the you know, year-and-a-half, two-year degree um, of the MA, the Cinema Studies MA program, which essentially is like nine classes and you're done. So you're, okay, so at that point, you're kind of choosing a track within the industry. You're, you're not going to be on the production side. You're going to be on the, on the, the other side. What, what, right. what is it, how do you even describe that? What I adjective mean, re- do you use? Really, the only thing that the MA program, you know, I had an amazing time in the program, and I would recommend it to anyone who has an interest in film because it really deepens your understanding. And, you know, to, to, to read just what the great minds who have grappled with what film is and film theory and have that guided by just brilliant professors who are, you know, showing you the right movies and giving you the right readings. It was, I'll never forget it. I will say, professionally speaking, it was not all that valuable. Okay. Because um, after that, I was an intern again, you know, I went, right, back, right. I went back to zero. So for me, it was more like, it gave me the space emotionally to kind of get off the track that I'd been on and just 
kind of blow up my life mm-hmm. in, the, in the best way and just start over. Yeah. And um, kind of, like I said, deepen my passion for film and increase my commitment level that, okay, I really do want to do something in the world of, of film. So uh, I did that and then um, started applying for internships. And in New York... That's the path. You get out of grad school and you go yeah, for internships. Yeah, so two and a half years of consulting experience, Ivy League degree, and yeah. then a master's from Tisch, and I'm like just trying to find any unpaid internship just, I can scratch. get. scratch, yeah. Yeah. So I sent my resume to every company in New York I could think of that had the word entertainment or film in okay. the title. And then I waited for a year. Wow. Yeah. What are you doing for this year? So what I did was I ran out of money, and I had to go back to my old firm okay. part-time yeah. and just kind of do you know lower-level work, sure. but I could still do kind of the, the, the associate-level stuff. Mm-hmm. And they were kind enough to take me back, and I worked a couple of days a week and kind of paid my rent. And, and uh, I, had, I had kind of dragged out, you know, so I went full-time for a year to NYU. Then I kind of was not sure what I was going to do next. So I kind of slowed down. <laughs> so then it took me ultimately three more semesters to finish because yeah. I just kind of wanted to drag it out. I was really enjoying it. I didn't want to be done was the right. thing. I, right? I'm familiar with the strategy. I didn't want to be done. Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's only nine courses total. So I took six and two semesters. I took three and three. And I said, well, I don't want to be. So I took one over the summer. I took sure. one in the fall. I took one. Yeah. So I, I, I dragged it out. And, um, but there was definitely some some panic happening, you know. I said, "Well, my gosh, what have I what have I done? I I I don't have any way to make money except this part time gig that is not really a sustainable thing. Right. I'm not hearing back from anybody. Um, I don't know anybody. In yeah, the are you taking any informational interviews or doing any networking I, at this I, point? I just had zero connections. Yeah. So, um, and why you know. The the this the, the film programs at these universities are really designed to get you into the PhD track and designed to get you faculty positions. Okay. They're not really designed to get you into the business, you know, into the, into into a movie studio. Right. So um, I had a really fun experience where I, I briefly was a research assistant for Paul Schrader, who at that point was mm. working. He wrote Taxi Driver and a bunch of other amazing iconic films, and his film in this past year was. I thought was awesome. It's called First Reformed, Ethan Hawke movie. I really loved it. Um, so very briefly, I worked with him, kind of pulling some research together for a, a book project that didn't actually happen. Sure. So they helped me get stuff like that. But when it came to like, okay, I need a job now, they they were helpful, but it, it, it wasn't like you know I'll just okay I'll call a buddy of mine over at uh, you know whatever and we'll get you a job. Yeah. So. Anyway, so after a year of kind of sweating, like, where am I going? I got a call from Miramax. Okay. And I remember, you know, her name was Lindsay, Lindsay Nadler. I'll never forget. And, and I was sitting at my, at ZS kind of like doing whatever I was doing. And, um, and that was the call. And I said, oh my gosh, like. Here it is. Here it is. This is, this is, this is the moment, right? And she, of course I'd, I'd, you know, I'd heard about Miramax and the legendary reputations of, um, Harvey and Bob Weinstein, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. At, at that point, they were known as being incredibly difficult and, and hard-nosed and hard to work with, obviously. Sure. I wonder if that was code for other things, maybe. Obviously, in retrospect, um, 
you know, the, the fact that I was in that building uh, when probably horrible things were happening yeah. um, on floors around me or whatever, it just, it definitely makes me feel pretty gross. Yeah, for um, sure. I, um, I ended up working on Team Bob, which was, uh, and, you know, Bob um, ran at that time the Dimension Films label. Okay. Which was like. There's a lot of the horror films, right? Exactly. Like- Exactly right. Scream was that kind of the the big it, exactly. So yeah. he did Scream, he did Scary Movie, the kind of the, right. the spoofy ones. He did the Spy Kids franchise and and Bob's Dimension films. They really they were very profitable for for a long time. Um, so I was I was there on on team on team Bob um, working for a guy named Josh Greenstein who um, was their head of marketing. So just randomly, I started learning about marketing because that was the internship that I got my yeah, my, career, my career could have gone any number of ways I was I was open to taking any job and just I just walked in one day to their office and they said you're going to work with Josh and I said okay, okay I'm here okay here I am let's let's do our let's you know so I really just put my head down and I said well I will do absolutely anything I've waited for a long time to get in this building and I yeah. will do anything and I did do it I mean I labeled yeah. tapes I got a lot of lunches and coffee. And you started and as unpaid, right? $10 a day. $10 a day. $10 is this kind of day. an audition type of setup? You know, the internship programs, you know, at, at that time were, there were just a lot, a lot of interns around. And yeah. I was, I was on the, definitely on the older side. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so a lot of them, you know, I, I got the sense we're just kind of exploring, you know, so I was able to distinguish myself because I was really willing to do anything and I was would not leave the office until everyone else had left. You know, I right. was just clearly like, okay, I'm I'm in it to win it, guys, yep. and I'll do yep. anything. Most of them were just younger and they were like, oh cool, I wonder what it'd be like to right. enter into a movie studio. Cool, fun. And then, you know, they'd kind of be like, I don't really feel like doing that today. So there wasn't a lot of like um they didn't have to grind the way you had to, to get there. Yeah. Well they you know they probably didn't weren't sure what they wanted yet. Sure. You know? Um so I um, was there, you know, kind of on a you know, part-time basis uh-huh. for a couple of years. And then my boss uh, left that job and took a job at Paramount. And he said, you should come be my assistant. Okay. Um, and this was back in 2005. And, I, you know, I, I had this dream of somehow staying in New York and working in the film business, which um, even at the time I knew was not really realistic, but I, I wasn't willing to let go of my family and friends, but I really loved movies and I had this, but maybe there's a way, but there, but there was no way. And now there's even less way because there's just not those jobs in New York. Mm-hmm. If you want to work in television or whatever, there's plenty of jobs, but in film, it's really LA. So I did a lot of soul searching and moved across the country knowing no one at all in LA. And um, in 2005, in October, I was an assistant at Paramount working for working for Josh Greenstein. So, um, and it was a wild ride. You know, I, I, I had zero connections. I had zero life. I just really just existed to, you know, be a good assistant and to do whatever it took to, you know, help our, help our little department succeed. Uh-huh. And I was lucky in that the, the, this was a time of transition at Paramount. Um, when I got there, we, you know, Brad Gray, who recently passed away, um, who who was my boss's boss for a, a, lot, a lot of years, um, he had just gotten gotten the studio. He was the head of the studio, and we quickly um, bought DreamWorks. Mm-hmm. 
um, which a lot of amazing movies came in from. And at that point, we then got the right to distribute DreamWorks Animation film. So we would make would release Kung Fu Panda and Madagascar films and even a Shrek, the fourth Shrek film. And that was just a lot of fun to be there for that. And then we also um, signed a deal with Marvel to distribute their early films. So Disney now owns Marvel, okay. as most people know. But at the time, they when they started making films, they were just a production entity. So they, they needed a studio to distribute the films. Yeah, can you kind of break down the structure here? So yeah. You're talking about you're buying you know, DreamWorks. Like what is a DreamWorks versus a Paramount versus yeah. – other entities within the so DreamWorks was a it was a company that was started by you know it's called DreamWorks SKG so uh-huh. the SKG is uh, Steven Spielberg is the S Jeffrey Katzenberg is the K David Geffen is the G mm-hmm. so these are three like titans of the film business yeah. who set out to create um, a freestanding movie studio television studio and they and they had their hands in in everything. Um, and they made some amazing movies um, and amazing television shows and they, but they're uh, just producing the content. They they were distributing f- at that time as well. Oh, okay. Um, okay. And for whatever, you know, for whatever reason they they I guess um they they never had the critical mass of films to to really kind of support this distribution entity. Okay. So um we we bought them mm-hmm. and we got um you know amazing amazing, you know, some of them uh may have been more marketable than um, incredibly quality wise, we, we got to work on Norbit, which was that Eddie Murphy, yep, yep. Blades of Glory, which was the Will <laughs> Ferrell movie. We worked on, um, you know, just and you know the uh, Transformers at that point was a Paramount DreamWorks uh, joint venture, so we got all of Transformers, which then became giant, an incredible franchise for us. So, um, and then we got the right to distribute the animation. Now, the animation um, company uh, became a publicly traded separate company, DreamWorks Animation, but we had the right to distribute those films. So they would make the films, and we would release the films. Okay. And yeah, it was just a lot of amazing product came through Paramount because, you know, uh, Brad and uh, his, uh, the team made that deal to, to buy that company. And then the Marvel thing happened. So Marvel was, um, had this dream of making, you know, to that point, Marvel had licensed rights for their characters to Hollywood studios to produce films. So Spider-Man was and is released by Sony. Mm-hmm. And the X-Men films uh, were released by Fox. Um, of course, now Disney bought Fox. So those X-Men films are going back to sure. Disney. Um, so, you know, back in 2006 or whatever it was, Marvel said, we should make our own movies. And so they raised a bunch of money and they became a production entity. And they hired a guy named Kevin Feige, who is, you know, now kind of like on the all-time list of great producers who's produced all the Marvel Universe films and has created this incredible universe um, from nothing, we know. So we, uh, Paramount had the right to distribute the, their, their first film. So when I got there, like within a year, all of a sudden I'm hearing about Iron Man. And I'm like, that's that's cool. And, and Josh, my boss, um, he was kind of the hotshot creative advertising guy. So he got that movie. So I cut my teeth on Iron Man. So you guys got to run marketing for Iron Man. Yeah. Wow. So 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 his role at that point was the the creative advertising. Okay. Josh then went on to run all of marketing for Paramount, and mm-hmm. now he's in charge of worldwide marketing and distribution at Sony. Wow. Um, but at that time, we were just you know doing the market, doing the creative the, the creative campaigns, and um, what a great movie to learn. 
the business on. So I learned on Iron Man. I learned on Transformers. I mean, I just, it was just the, the timing was really great. So I, I got to be a part of these films that are still like some of the biggest films we've uh, Paramount's ever ever released. Just because I got there at the right uh, timing is a big part of For it. For sure, it's a big part of it. A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. I'm Larry Summers, Harvard President Emeritus and former Treasury Secretary. You're listening to A New Angle. And what, I mean, what's the process of putting together a campaign for a film and deciding of this, you know, of the films that your studio is working on at a given time, what are the ones where we're going to really invest in promotion? What are the ones that we're going to maybe pr- promote a little less or differently? How's that kind of work? Right. So, you know, a studio will release, um, let's say a studio releases 15 to 18 movies a year. Yeah. You know, you 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 try to have a, vari- a wide variety of movies for different audiences, different budget levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and with correspondingly different uh, marketing spend levels. So a film that's targeting kind of a, a, a small – let's talk about book clubs. We released a film called Book Club yep. last year, and it really did really well for us. And that was targeted at specifically an older female demographic. And it was uh, made for a very reasonable price. It had you know, uh, great star power for that audience. Mm-hmm. And we were able to you know, spend um, – you know, a relatively modest amount of money to target just the kind of older female moviegoers who then showed up. Yep. So contrast that with a film like um, Mission Impossible, which is another film we had last year, whereas, you know, you're spending a lot more money on the movie. Yep, yep. And you're spending a lot more money on marketing, and you're really marketing that to everybody. You're probably doing a whole lot more stuff too yes. with your marketing, merchandising and placements yes. and all this other Much stuff. Much bigger campaign. Um, and those were just two films that were, you know, both very successful on their own terms with radically different um, marketing plans. And you probably know that going in, like a movie like Mission Impossible, large production, giant actors, whereas Book Club, you know, it's much leaner to produce a movie like Book Club, I would imagine. Correct. You don't have any explosions to deal correct. with. <laughs> correct. Correct. Or special effects or any of that. Yeah. So that, that has to probably ent- – are, are there like formulas and standards of practice that you guys yeah, I mean, operate by? A lot of what we do is driven by um, comp films. So f- films that we've released in the past or others it. have. Okay. You know, how did, how are those approached? Obviously, everything's changing every year, minute, yeah. to, minute to minute. So you can't – just copy what you did before. But when you think about like, okay, what did we spend on X? That, that That's usually the starting point, you know, and then kind of what's changed in the media landscape. What do we have to adjust? Do we have to spend more on um, digital platforms because mm-hmm. they've grown by 500% since yeah. that film. But um, that, that does, it helps a lot. You know, it's um, in, in Hollywood, you know, there's, you know, maybe 105, 110 uh, films that are released wide every year, and every one of those films wide that, meaning mass distribution to yeah, screens across the country. Meaning, like um, typically when you say wide, you mean like fifteen hundred, two thousand, three thousand screens. Okay, you know, yeah. There's a lot more films that are released on a few screens, um, but when you're talking about you know wide release films that have a real kind of healthy marketing campaign against it, it's a hundred, hundred and five hundred and ten films a year. Okay, um, and every one of those films is a little is a, a case study. For those of us in the business, so we say, well, if a film worked, 
how was it sold? How big was the campaign? Where did they, you know, um, spend their their dollars and, and their time? And it, it, it does help a lot to have those reference points. Mm-hmm. So you're not starting from, from nothing. I guess that's the same in every business. You're looking to see what worked and how it was approached and, you know, keep it fresh. But just if you have a template to follow, it always, it's a good starting point. Yeah. yeah. And how much are you guys involved in the actual go, no go decisions with, with films? Yeah. You know, I'm sure they bring you and your team in to say, Hey, this is a film we can sell. Yeah. There's a, there's a green light process and, um, the, all, all senior execs in the studio are kind of represented in that, in that room. Okay. You know, from, from the marketing team to the, the home media team, to the licensing team, domestic, international, you know, everyone's there and everyone kind of speaks to, um, the, uh, potential of the film in, in all the different windows and all the different countries. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, it, it really, you know, it really is ultimately the head of the studio's decision, but everyone has a voice in the process, which I think is a healthy process. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, I, I'm just trying to think of like how much the industry is changing and yes. how much your job has changed. Probably just in the couple of years you've been in this current role. I mean, how are you thinking about this? Are big screens losing share as platforms like you know digital platforms in your home are gaining share? Like, how's that? How's that kind of working? Right. So you know. It would seem harder to get people to go to the theater in the Correct. current environment. It's it's strange, but 2018 was the biggest year we've ever had yeah, in, yeah. The, in the movie business, which is so counterintuitive right. when you hear about the rise of these streaming platforms. You know, how many more scripted television shows there are now? Mm-hmm. Um, the guys at FX, uh, John Landgraf and the guys at FX, they really are, you know, they, they're kind of the uh, the watchdog of the volume of television content that's happening. Yep. And they put out a report every year, and it's peak TV is a phrase that's been coined lately. To I think. mean, it kind of feels that way. Yeah. For a while, it felt like TV was dead when reality TV was kind of taking over everything. But yeah. now, like... The, the resurgence of such high quality television is amazing. So there's like 500 scripted shows now. Yeah. There used to be like 250. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but somehow, despite that, movies are still incre- more popular than ever. Yeah. Um, now it's it seems like there's uh, a concentration around the biggest, uh, 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 most expensive yeah. branded tent. We call them tent pole. Mm-hmm. type movies and um and that's true um but then you look at a quiet place which we had last year which made a ton of money despite costing very little because it just had a great concept and was executed really well and wow you're making all of a sudden you're making hundreds of millions of dollars off this little horror movie so it's 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 hard to draw a clear conclusion from all of this other than to say there seems to be something about the movie-going experience yeah. that is uh, attractive to the world still. There's something about wanting to get out of your house and go to a theater that so far all of the, the, the massive increase in quantity and quality of content that's delivered to the home and to the phone – yeah, has not yeah. has not replaced, and I think that's that's great because when I think about why I 
uprooted my life and moved to L.A. and took a flyer on this crazy new adventure of being in the movie business. It was because I had those experiences in movie theaters that were transformative, right. that, that, that truly changed my life, you know, and, um, and changed who I am. So I, I, I hope that, you know, people will still be able to have those experiences and they seem to like those experiences. And there's only so much time you can spend in your pajamas on your couch before you have to get out of there and you have to go and just experience the outside world. And I think, you know, I'm proud to work in a business that is providing people that opportunity to escape into, into, um, to get out of their houses, to have a communal experience, to put their phones away sure. for a couple hours and just give themselves over to a filmmaker who's trying to provide them with an experience that they'll never forget. There's something really cool about that. And yeah, you the, can't do that on your phone. You're right. The social aspect of sharing it's, it in the theater with other people. I can think of a horror movie by yourself versus with others or, or anything where there's like visceral response, comedy, horror, the two guy kind of think of. I suppose you can get it through drama and suspense and other categories. Correct. You know, the, the, the rise in these massive tech monopolists that we all talk about, Facebook, Amazon, right. Google, um, they, they, they'd rather you just spend time at home and on your phone. Yeah, because they're they can, engineering their platforms to keep you there. They can monetize you there. Yep, and um, and uh, and that's great. Look, the tech companies have have done amazing things in terms of improving people's lives. But um, I I, I really I really hope that that we retain this 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 kind of cultural oddity that we still have of communal experiences, of the excitement of opening day to mm. new to new movie. I, I read it's great. I'm going to schedule my day around this yeah, specific it's like a piece scarcity of, thing. Even exactly. though you can go another day, it's still kind of, it approximates a live event. There's something magical and wonderfully human about wanting to be a part of something uh-huh. on opening day or opening weekend and being able to talk to your friends about it in a way that um, when you have an unlimited sea of, of tiles of choice, it's hard for any one of those tiles to become that cultural event sure. that's worth sharing with with loved ones, you know? The other thing that's a little bit more nuanced, which which um, it, it, I've, been, I've been trying to gather my thoughts on for the past couple of years is, I just don't think you can have, it's, it's more difficult to have that truly cathartic transcendent experience at home versus in a theater. And I think it's, the communal thing is part of it. But I also think it has something to do with the fact that when you when you've decided when you've made the choice to say i'm going to go see what this spike lee movie is all about and i'm going to i'm going to get myself to a theater and i'm going to turn off my phone and i'm going to and i'm going to not worry about uh, what's in the kitchen and i'm going to not go to the bathroom and i'm just going to sit here in this seat and stare at this screen and give myself over to spike lee and the other filmmakers and and see what they've got see if they can move me i think that emotionally you're in a place that's more receptive to the content and to being moved and to having it be a memorable experience for all those reasons. The communal thing is part of it, but it's also just that there's no distractions. Yeah, The I mean, room that... is dark. Your phone's in your pocket. Right, right. And you've paid. You've paid for that experience. Mm-hmm. So you're like 
you're more likely to, to really give it, a, give it a fair shake because you're there, you've given them money. You're sitting there, you know, versus... You've given the money and the time and, and the, the time. effort and the focus. And you've the, given a lot. You've given a lot. So that when that filmmaker delivers, there's a wonderful thing that happens where, yeah. where, where it's, it's, it's magic. And look, I love Game of Thrones and I'm excited for Game of Thrones. Um, and I'll watch Game of Thrones voraciously this year. But there is just something about being in that theater and giving yourself over to that experience that I think m- makes the experience more meaningful. Hmm. Yeah, I, I buy that for sure. But at the same time, I'm thinking about like, how are you guys thinking about other forces in the marketplace of entertainment, whether it's live events, whether it's virtual reality? I know you do some work on virtual reality. Like what what sort of other tiles are you thinking about in your role at Paramount to complement kind of the, the, the key stable of, of traditional movies? Right. Well, you know, all, all companies like, like Paramount that have IP that we can, intellectual property that, that we control, we're, we're always looking to how do we monetize this through other channels? Yeah. So it's not really my area of expertise. I did work on VR a little bit a few years ago. Um, but definitely there's uh, a lot of people at the studio that are just continually working on how do we translate these brands, these characters, these worlds that, that we kind of own mm-hmm. into other newer emerging platforms. The easiest one to talk about is television. Yeah. That Paramount's built over the last, it's pretty new, I think it's four years old, uh, from scratch television division that now has many, many exciting shows kind of on the air. Um and uh, is doing really well. So that's 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 an easy one, you mm-hmm. know. And we have this amazing library, and the television group can now say, "What about what about a Jack Ryan TV show?" Yeah. And and now that's because you own those characters. Because we own the characters. Right. Yeah. And prior to having a TV company, the only option was to kind of license those characters out. Now we can. It's not me, but that team can sure. work with filmmakers and writers and really develop this these brands into into you know television. Uh, projects and you know I know Amazon really rallied around Jack Ryan. It was a massive launch for them, and um, I think did really well for them. So um, that that's the easiest thing to talk about because there is obviously a clear yeah. path to monetization in television, and there's more shows than ever. And now we're now we're a part of that in the way that we weren't um, prior. Because what happened was when um, Viacom and CBS split in 2006, CBS got all the television stuff. And, and and Paramount kept um, just the movie stuff, um, so we've had to kind of start over, and um, we didn't really start over until, like I said, four years ago. So it's a, it's a, it's a brand new kind of thing, but it's, they're doing great. That show Maniac on Netflix was from uh-huh. Paramount. Um, Thirteen Reasons Why. So there, there, there's been a lot of really successful shows that have come out of Paramount TV, and I'm I'm, I'm proud that they've they've done so well so quickly. And another sort of thing I think about, you know, one thing we teach at the business school is sort of differentiation, right? How does that work with a company like Paramount versus your competitors? How do you guys think about, you know, brand and differentiation and and, and what the brand stands for and what a Paramount movie is versus, you know, a competitor's movie? Right. So, yeah, the concept of brand as pertains to a studio, it's 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 a very it's a very tricky thing. Yeah, um, we hope that Paramount means 
this is a movie that's worth going to a theater for, that's of a certain quality, um, that you're going to go home and feel good about having paid the money to see the film. Other than that, it's hard because it really is in our interest as a studio. If a film will be successful, we have to make it, right? Yeah. Whether it's on brand or off, like you know, it's 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 important. So that it doesn't brand does not go down to genre or style or positioning or whatever. It does for some studios. Okay. So a Disney movie Disney, means something, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So that's why Disney years ago launched this Touchstone label mm-hmm. because they only wanted to apply Disney to the films that were Disney family. They can make edgier stuff with Touchstone. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So. Marvel means something. Marvel means, okay, this is a film based on 5,000 characters, millions of pages of right. brilliant writers and artists thinking about this char- these characters. But Marvel's not a studio. Marvel is, is, a, is, a, is a label that Disney distributes, right? So, um, you know, th- there, are, there are brands that mean something in the space, but they're usually a level down from the distributor. Okay. Um, we have we're lucky enough to have a deal with Tyler Perry now, where we have uh, the right to distribute and produce his films. That brand means a lot to that to, to Tyler's sure. audience, and we're and we're so lucky to have him as, as part of the as part of our family. Um, that so, that means something. Yeah, so, what you're describing sounds a little bit like Procter and Gamble model, although the Procter and Gamble's done a little bit more corporate advertising lately. But but yeah, this family of brands they kind of all roll up into a singular promise. But each one of them is pretty distinctive in and of itself. Right. It's not about the umbrella. Like if you ask the average person what Procter and Gamble means, they'd be like Procter and Who. Yeah, exactly. But everyone knows. Yeah, everyone could probably. If Everybody you, knows Tide. Everyone knows Tide. Yeah, I mean, how much money has Tide made over the years? Oh yeah, it's inc- it's incredible, right? Just go down the aisle and grab orange. It's a durable, durable brand. Yeah. Yes. So I think that's a good analogy. Yeah. I mean, we, if you're lucky enough to have, you know. And by the way, some of the franchises we have kind of become their own brands. Mission Impossible kind of is a brand. Right, right. How many yeah. there are there now? Like we, ju- we just released the sixth one. Sixth one, okay. And, and we've announced that um, Chris McQuarrie um, will direct and Tom Cruise will, of course, produce and star in seven and eight, which will be made concurrently. So they're going to make have two. you guys invented a time machine for Tom <laughs> Cruise yet? So they're going to make two at once, and I'm really excited. They're going to come out. We are very lucky to have um, Mr. Cruz uh, around at Paramount. So we have a Top Gun film with him in 20, okay. which we're so excited about. And yeah. then we have Mission 7 and 21 oh and gosh. Mission 8 and 22. So we have one a year from Tom for the next three years, and it's it's going to be it's gonna be a wild ride. We're very excited. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So Mission kind of becomes its own brand, mm-hmm. you know. Um what other what other big I mean you know, Transformers was a brand. Yep. You know, yep. we we released we released five of those films, then we did a Bumblebee spin-off. Um, but it was still very much in that universe. Part of that brand in, family. in that world. You see Bumblebee's yeah. face and his yellow, you know, body. You go, oh, okay, Transformers. Yeah, you know? part of the deal. So like it no one's I, I don't think there's this there's consumers that say, I'm gonna go see it because it's a paramount film. Right. Right. But I think we're hoping that our logo denotes legacy quality you certainly see the stars swirling around at the beginning and it definitely stands for something specific we're we're hoping it makes you feel like this is going to be a movie worth seeing in a theater yeah but beyond that you know we kind of have to make horror films because they work Mm -hmm. we have to make comedies because they work we have to make you know book club movies because they because they work so if you're saying we're only going to make one kind of movies you know you're then saying well we're we're just going to pass on 
these five genres, right. and you really can't do that because if an opportunity, if a project comes in that maybe is in a genre that you haven't released in a while, I think you got to do it. You think about Crazy Rich Asians, which worked for a variety of reasons for Warner Brothers. Um, you know, the it was it was the first film you know in whatever twenty years with an all Asian cast, and that was incredible. But also, there hadn't been a rom com in a really long time. Sure. And I think that was exciting because we've kind of been sitting out the genre for a while because it hadn't mm-hmm. been working. But there was an excitement to say, oh, cool, a big screen romantic comedy. I haven't seen one of those in a while, mm-hmm. right? So if Warner's had said, well, we don't really do those, that's not really our brand, Yeah, that would have been a mistake, right? Yeah, because yeah. you know they would have passed on a very successful project that I think got them a lot of goodwill and a lot of profit. Yeah, and it would seem like brand, yeah, brand means something different and the skill set that you know the, the way the industry set up the skill set that can produce a good rom-com versus a good uh horror film versus a good uh suspense thriller it's not very different across those genres at least that's my perception well it is on the filmmaker side for sure right you know what, but it, like at the corporate side it, on it the corporate side yeah much. well i mean i like to think as a marketer that I can sell anything, yeah, you know. But there certainly is a, a muscle memory that that you get from working on a certain a certain kind of movie. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, I, I definitely like to think that we're smart enough and can sell a movie in any genre. So yeah. So, Peter, we got to get you on to your next thing. Sure. You're here for a, a well, actually, that's kind of what I want to close with. Is yeah. How on earth are you here? Why are you here? Why are you chosen to come back to the University of Montana to talk to our students for? five years running now well you know i i get a kick out of uh doing this every year it's um we talked a little bit about my struggles to get into the business sure. you know and um i grew up near new york but i grew up in jersey you know deepest deepest jersey you know? yeah which and exit 135 <laughs> okay <laughs> and i gotta tell you new york felt a long way away yeah. You know, for me, it felt like, wow, I, you know, I'm not sure I'll ever be able to make it in the big city, you know, which is silly because it was, it was an hour drive, right? Sure, but, but it it's felt far like away, a million miles away. So what, what, I, what, what Jeremy Sauter and I, who, who I teach a class with every year, what we try to tell the students is like, you can do anything that you want. There's no, there's no reason, there's no, there, there's no better people in this city versus wherever you're from. Right. It's all just, Everyone's got their strengths. Everyone's got their weaknesses. And people who succeed are people like me who just like parked their parked their butt in a cubicle at a movie studio and said, I'm not leaving right. until I prove what I'm capable of. And I was lucky enough to have um, bosses and mentors that identified, you know, that in me. So we try to just say, you know, you can, it, you probably have to move. You probably have to get yourself to a city that has the kinds of things that you want to do. Uh-huh. But once you're there, you can you can do anything, because you know, there's no 23 year old that knows everything. You're 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 on equal footing. Right. So it's just about being in the right city, being in the right building, and being in the right room, and learning and working hard. And you can do you can do anything. And then selfishly, I get a ton out of talking to students. Yeah. You know, and I just turned 41. So I definitely, you know, I've def- definitely out of the youth age of my of my life as much as I. <laughs> oh, I don't know. You're making me feel old. Hate now. to admit it, but no. But look, our, we we sell we sell these movies to young people. They still go to the right movies. So it's important that I, 
kind of stay in touch with that a little market research coming up here it's a little Montana. market research yeah no it, i i i asked them about how they consume entertainment mm-hmm. and, and 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 it's amazing how much it's changed even in just the five years i've been coming here i asked people to raise their hand who has a netflix subscription who has been to a movie theater in the past two months who you know and and, and you know uh who buys their movie tickets online who, right all these things are changing so fast, so it really helps me to just kind of understand what younger folks are, how, how they think about our business and what I do all day, which is struggle to get them to buy tickets and go see movies in the theater. You know. Well, it's awesome to have you here. I, you know, we're thankful for your wisdom and your dedication to our students, and I, I'm just really grateful you had some time to stop by the pod and. Tell us some about your story. Thank you. It's an, it's an honor to be here every year and, and to sit with you, and um, I hope I keep getting invited back. Well, you're welcome here anytime. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Okay, hope you enjoyed that conversation with Peter as much as I did. Coming up next week, we have the next installment in our Sea Change series. It's a conversation with the amazing Brigitta Miranda Freer, the executive director of the Montana World Trade Center and director of operations at Montec. If you don't know what either of those two things are, that's fine. Tune in next week and learn all about it. Thanks for listening to New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, part of the Michelle and Lauren Hansen Media Lab at the University of Montana College of Business. Remember that this podcast was supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you'd ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps. Executive producer, Stefan Borsum. Producer, Aidan Morton. And interns, Aspen Runkel, Max Gibson, and Ellie Hanasek. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag, a new angle when you do. Thanks a lot. See you next time.